Welcome to a special edition of Museum Chat Live. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by indigenous peoples for millennia, and we would like to honor the centuries of indigenous peoples who walked on Turtle Island before us. In the spring of 2020, we began to offer history lectures through our virtual museum lecture series live on YouTube. Now, with over 20 lectures, we're happy to bring the lecture audio to the podcast so that more people can enjoy these fascinating stories. If you want to catch the lectures in full, take a gander at our YouTube channel. You'll find us under St. Catherine's Museum. We will release most of the 20 lectures over the next few weeks, and as we add more lectures to YouTube, so too will they eventually appear here on the podcast. We hope these lectures provide a bit of historical joy and also spark imagination and exploration into our city's rich history. More lectures are headed your way this fall. For details, please visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca. If you enjoy the lectures, why not consider making a donation to the museum? Your donations help us to continue to provide the high quality and enjoyable programming that you have come to expect from us. We really appreciate any donation you're able to make. Give us a call at 905-984-8880 during our operating hours or visit stcatherinesmuseum.ca to make a donation. Your donation makes a difference. Today's lecture is one of my favorites. Of course, I wrote and presented it, so I'm a little biased. But the story of the first full operating season of the Welland Canal in 1830 is so interesting because it challenges the dominant narrative of a well-organized, well-financed, and well-run, and generally successful endeavor, when, in actuality, it was plagued with problems and failures. This is a topic I have really enjoyed researching, and so you can expect a longer form podcast documentary series coming to Museum Chat Live soon. For now, enjoy the lecture. I want you to take a moment to think about your favorite vacation story. Think about the first time you told it, or maybe you recorded it in your diary. Now think about the last time you told the same story. How has the story changed over time? If it's like most stories, it's likely shortened. Details have been dropped or slightly modified in favor of narrative flow. Maybe even once what was a 10 minute vacation story has become a one sentence story. This tendency for us humans to shorten stories to the most interesting and pertinent facts for the sake of a narrative flow is normal. However, it is unfortunately the fate of so many complex and long histories that details become forgotten or worse, myths or assumptions take the place of facts. Not through malice, but again, for the sake of a good story. Here's how the story of the canal, the first canal, is usually told. The first Welling Canal was constructed between 1824 and 1829 by William Hamilton Merritt and the private Welling Canal Company. The canal's 40 locks were built of wood, 
Unfortunately, they rotted and were replaced by the stone locks of the second Welland Canal between 1840 and 1845. The poor old story of the first Welland Canal is often victim to this curse. Its story is frequently reduced to mere sentences, in my view, for a few reasons. First, the canal was built before photography captured its locations, structures, and people. So it's harder for us to visualize it, and we often rush its story to make way for the stories that are more tangible to our memory. Second, and similarly, the canal company was not known for its record keeping. And so little primary source material remains meaning many questions and gaps remain in the story. Questions and gaps are not good for storytelling. Third, the excitement and of the canal's replacements through photography, paperwork, and records, memory, and built heritage help to keep those projects front of mind. Fourthly, the first Welland Canal was victim of malicious attacks that have colored our perspective of the project as a major failure. The usual narrative suggests the second Welland Canal as the valiant hero arriving to save the day and save Niagara from an expensive mistake, the decrepit old canal subject to rot and effectively useless. And finally, it was an extremely complicated process to get the project off the ground. There is no way to accurately convey the story of the first Welland Canal without getting into how messy it was. Numerous, story, numerous historians have either succumbed to the complicated nature of the story and maintained its complexity to the bane of readers or have skipped important detail that help explain the intricacies. I could go on. Suffice to say that the story of the Welland Canal has been shortchanged by both its contemporaries and by historians alike in favor of a smooth narrative. I am guilty of this too. Please do not think me above reproach in this topic. In fact, my motivation for tonight's lecture is to help bring some of the complexity back into the story for its regular telling. However, we only have so much time and so many details have been left out. I encourage everyone to continue their own research from home. I should also clarify that in no way do I intend to present a complete history of the first Welland Canal. This is not an A to Z history of the Welland Canal. I doubt anyone would want to participate in what would likely be a five-day lecture series. Without the time needed to tell the whole story, I unfortunately must parse, even after I've called out parsing for the last five minutes. I'm sure you all understand, and I greatly appreciate the patience everyone in attendance will lend me tonight for the purposes of sharing a compelling narrative. To do this, I've chosen the year can everyone hear? There's one person who says they can't hear. I'm sorry to stop. I think I'm okay.
Sounds like I'm okay. I can. <laughs> Dorothy, if you're having trouble hearing, send us a, a note or comment and we'll try to help you out. Kathleen is on the email and she'll try to help you out. Um, okay, I'm gonna keep going. Um, all right. So as I was saying, without the time needed to tell the whole story, I unfortunately must parse even after I've called out parsing for the last five minutes. Okay, um, I'm sure you all understand and I appreciate the patience everyone in attendance will lend me tonight for the purposes of sharing, again, a compelling narrative. To do this, I've chosen the year 1830, as I said, the canal's first full season of operation to help us explore the complex yet fascinating history of our first canal. Yet before looking at 1830, we need to look at how the Welling Canal Company, against all odds it would seem, uh, finally opened the Welland Canal. The usual story of the canal involves Merritt emerging from his stint as a prisoner of war in Massachusetts in 1815 after the War of 1812. He married his bride, Catherine, in New York and arrived back to the family properties in St. Catharines on the 12 during the war. During the war, he served as uh, a captain in the Niagara Provincial Light Dragoons, where during the invasion of 1813, spent his time harassing American scouts in the bush. During his time riding around the region, he put together his idea for a canal. He arrived back in 1815 and off he went on his canal building journey. I should mention though that his, can, uh, that, um, his was not the first idea for a canal route through Niagara. Niagara Falls had been a problem for a long time and both individual and government surveyors had been mapping and routing for almost 20 years. So the canal is not original to merit but the route it eventually took is. The problem with the story, the way it's usually told, is that it skips an important character plot point. Merritt was bad with money. While Merritt held on to the idea of a canal upon his return to the 12, he took over and restarted the family milling business. In partnership with his new brother-in-law, Charles Ingersoll, he went big. They opened a sawmill, gristmill, distillery, a pot ashery, a cooper shop, and a blacksmith shop. He also began drilling for salt. And salt could have saved him if he could have kept fresh water out of the mine shafts. To say he was an energetic and enthusiastic businessman is an understatement, but he extended himself beyond his ability to react in a crisis. He and Ingersoll took on huge amounts of debt to finance the startup. And in reality, he bit off more than he could chew. When the crisis eventually arrived, as all crises seemingly do, he and Ingersoll were unable to stay afloat. The entire upper Canada economy slowly dwindling into chaos, Merritt fared no better than most. 
Between 1817 and 1821, Merritt fell into severe debt and his Montreal creditors were looking to collect. Merritt was in a hole. Luckily, and I do mean luckily in all seriousness, Merritt's uncle, Nehemiah Merritt, a rich, rich uh, businessman, merchant himself, bailed him out. Nehemiah Parrott paid off the Montreal creditors. Meanwhile, the Erie Canal was wrapping up construction and opening up for navigation. And Merritt hadn't done a thing about his canal dreams. So this is where we find Merritt in 1821, starting over, eager to move on, and hungry to make a name for himself. I should be clear that I didn't share this story to tease or belittle Merritt. Rather, I think it's an important character development that shows two things. The first, you cannot keep this guy down. The second, money was maybe not his strong suit. This is character development that is usually skipped. Merritt has always been presented to me as a wealthy and wise businessman. So hopefully you'll agree with me when later we see that the Welling Canal Company was only ever completed by a combination of Merritt's drive and his dumb luck. Over the next few years, Merritt surveyed and planned, but Merritt had competition. The government had some ideas about a canal from Burlington Bay to the Grand River, and others had seemingly surveyed dozens of routes across Niagara. Like I said, navigating the portages of Niagara Falls was not a new problem, but the route favored by others and by the government did not suit Merritt at all. What he wanted and what he needed was a canal that would pass through his property in St. Catharines on 12 Mile Creek. He still had a milling business after all, and a steady supply of water power would basically guarantee its success. Establishing canal works would give him the security he needed without having to pay for the entire thing himself. He needed to get folks on his side. So he lobbied, he lobbied hard. He lobbied with the goal of getting the legislature to set aside their official route and then charter a private corporation to choose its own route at the cost of bearing the expense and risk itself. This was probably the smartest move Merritt made in his entire career. The government's many surveyors came up with multiple routes and the government dawdled on the edge, merely dipping its toe in the water. The main reason for not moving forward with a government project was money. Upper Canada did not have any money. The Rideau Canal, built between 1826 and uh, 1832, was a military project funded by the imperial government. A trade canal, however necessary, was a project well beyond the means of the young, just barely 30-year-old government, which by the way, hadn't yet opened state debt to any market 
and bitterly competed with Lower Canada for customs duties. So when Merritt arrived at the office of the Lieutenant Governor with plans for a canal to be built for the government at no public cost, the charter for a private company was granted. I should add here that Merritt's lobbying included befriending the entire family compact and ruling Tory party. I wish I had more time to get into the political atmosphere of Upper Canada at this time, but suffice to say that Merritt picked the ruling Tory party to focus his lobbying efforts on. It was effective for getting the canal project off the ground, but hitching your wagon to one horse can be troublesome in the realm of politics, where power and public opinion can change hands quickly. Merritt made friends in York, Toronto. He made enemies at home. Early subscribers to the canal company stock had jumped on the bandwagon in hopes the canal would take a route that favored their own land and business. One major route for consideration was a terminus at Niagara, now Niagara-on-the-Lake, which was the county seat. The canal would begin at the mouth of the Niagara River. When Merritt quashed the hopes and dreams of folks in Niagara, the 171 shares sold there were effectively returned, having, having basically been sold conditionally on their canal plan. Trouble continued to brew for Merritt, even after the route was chosen. It centered around the cost estimates for the canal. They were surprisingly low. While there weren't any horribly difficult elements of the canal project on the surface, and the project was considerably comparable to the Erie Canal, though much shorter, there wasn't any cause for concern. In fact, the cost estimates are likely what sparked interest from the government and caught the eye of investors. For example, the estimates listed stone locks at a cost of 1,000 pounds per lock, and wooden locks at 250 pounds per lock. Wondering why they went with wood when they really maybe should have gone with stone? Um, the choice of wood seemed like the right one since wood was readily available around Niagara. Wooden locks, if built correctly, had a good track record on other canals and most surveyors and engineers agreed that it was the sensible option. In the end, it came down to money. I truly believe that Merritt, who we might call a quote, measure once, cut once kind of businessman, was more interested in getting the project started and sorting out any mess that came along later. He didn't realize the mess these estimates would make, though if they were any higher, the canal wouldn't have been built. His son and biographer Jedediah also recorded that his father was fully aware of the rising expenses and that they'd be easier dealt with once construction was pronounced finished. After the Welling Canal Company was established and the board of directors organized, the board charged Merritt with finding the money to pay for the project. The government had restricted the sale of stock to Canadian and British investors fearing any interference from the United States. Built into the company's charter were ownership and governance provisions that kept potential foreign investment from dominating the board. Despite enthusiasm in Upper Canada, it was a struggle to get the money from Montreal. 
the biggest trading hub in the Canadas. Merritt wrote, quote, everybody wishes the undertaking well, but when it comes to the needful, they keep their hands from paper, end quote. He was likely knocking on the doors of lenders and merchants to which he owed a great deal of money not three years earlier. When Merritt finally focused on New York and Albany, he had more luck. That luck came in the form of American businessman, John Berentz Yates. Yates held quite a different view from the hesitant merchants Uh, he hesitant merchants in Montreal and London. He jumped in with both feet and bought almost 600 shares himself when the Upper Canada government allowed uh, American investors to purchase shares. The explanation of Yates's enthusiasm is likely to be found in Merritt's sales pitch. Merritt painted a picture of an easy construction project with huge returns from such tiny expenditures comparative to the big, long Erie Canal. Yates was in the New York lottery business and preferred quick in and out loans since the majority of his liquid capital was tied to the lottery. The Welland route via Lake Ontario would likely move stock to New York faster than the Erie Canal. And so Yates saw a small scale project with little risk and huge reward. Additionally, confidence in government ability to finish projects in time and on budget was low. So the fact that private corporation was taking on the project made it attractive to investors and thus sped the project along. By early 1825, thanks to Yates, Merritt had secured enough funds to start the project in earnest. You know, you have, you know, when you have a grocery list and a budget, and then you walk down the snack aisle and you're surprised at the final tally when you get to the checkout. Well, the Welland Canal Company left their list in the car and went straight to the snack aisle. The New York investors wanted to enlarge the canal from a barge canal to accommodate schooners. The worry was that since barge cargo needed to be moved off or on at either end to larger vessels, um, the transshipment would ruin its competitive edge. This would certainly make it far more attractive and competitive with the Erie Canal, but the cost estimates and fundraising were drawn for smaller locks. The company would need more money and certainly more water to accomplish a larger canal. Larger locks were a smart business move and worth the additional borrowing. It's all the other problems the company would have to overcome that became expensive very quickly. Early on, the lock built near Merritt's property on 12 Mile Creek was washed out by a bad luck rainstorm that lasted for days. The laborers had only just installed timber cribbing when the works were washed away days later. This is only one example of troublesome weather getting in the way. Contractors battled frost and ice in winter, and the freeze and thaw complicated not only their work, but the finished projects, which had to be repaired even before the canal opened. 
The route south from Thorold was troublesome because of the height of land between Allenburg and uh, Port Robinson. The deep cut, as they call it, was the thorn in the side of the company, its engineers, and Merritt himself. With one disaster after another, it became a money pit. Originally, the engineers had planned to use Chippewa Creek as the primary water source for the canal. Laborers discovered an underwater spring that complicated construction and water levels. In building, in building a canal, you want the right amount of water in the right place. The wrong water in the wrong place was disastrous and expensive. The soil of the deep, the soil of the deep cut was also tricky and it kept mudsliding, injuring and killing laborers and delaying the project. The task of getting the deep cut deep enough to match the level of the Chippewa was becoming less and less attainable. They just couldn't get deep enough and they just couldn't tame the soil and water issues. Instead, they brought water from the Grand River, which with a dam sat higher than the Chippewa. This of course was at enormous cost via the long feeder canal. This was not entirely in the plans in 1824, though they were part of Merritt's expansion dreams for later. And so it was hugely expensive. It involved draining swampland in Waynefleet, damming the Grand River and buying up huge tracts of property, all major ticket items the company did not budget for. While the water was brought in for the, from the Grand River between 1829 and 1833, navigation was hurried through Chippewa accomplished with two locks from the canal down into Chippewa Creek. The combination of all these problems, new locks, changes to the route, and major delays meant that the company and contractors often cut corners to be able to accomplish the tasks, let alone anywhere near the timeline and the budget set out. Remember also that the investors expected the project to be fairly simple and completed quickly. All the messy problems they were beginning, uh, that all the messy problems they had were beginning to add up. And the company was hemorrhaging money with limited sources of income remaining. The longer it took to build the canal, the longer it took the canal to bring in revenue, and the more money it needed to stay afloat. Loans and grants from the government along with Yates basically throwing his entire, or essentially his entire fortune and credit into the project were the only thing that kept it going. The longer it went on, the more important it was for the work to be finished quickly and cheaply. I can just, I can just hear Merritt, perhaps exhausted from the constant project management saying to the contractors, just get the thing open. I wish I could spend more time on the financial and construction difficulties of the company, but for the purpose of, purposes of tonight's lecture, I think I've adequately described the tight spot, both financially and logistically, that the Welland Canal Company found itself when it opened for its first major season in 1830.
Sorry, I muted to cough and then I couldn't come off, <laughs> off mute again. <clears throat> Excuse me. Over the last five years, the company had petitioned the government for two things regularly. The first was loans and grants of usually 25,000 pounds. The second was amendments to their charter to increase the stock capital capacity so that they could sell more stock. Sometimes these two coincided and the government began to purchase stock, eventually buying enough to put two, then three government picked directors on the board. By 1830, they had taken numerous loans from the provincial government and one big 50,000 pound loan from the imperial government. Despite their heavy borrowing, the company was optimistic that fees and tolls and other revenues on the canal would eventually make up the difference. When the canal opened on November 29th, 1829, they hoped to start seeing some relief. It was a very happy occasion when the schooner Anne and Jane entered Lock 1 and successfully completed passage a few days later. They did it. They built the canal. The celebrations did not last long. While it was a huge success and quite happy, quite the happy occasion, the canal had been cheaply and hastily constructed. The locks were continually giving trouble. The water supply was inadequate and the entrance to the Niagara River at Chippewa was dangerous and inconvenient. The fact that the Welland Canal was at all operational and navigable was an engineering feat on its own. Major construction repairs uh, projects remained. They hadn't made it to Lake Erie yet, and all of the shortcuts, uh, all of the shortcuts contractors made meant many, many repairs. The deep cut was unstable mudsliding even after the canal had opened. Lock walls were buckling in because frost cracking made their cribbing supports unstable. The design of the lock gates meant that both ends of the lock had the same size gates so that when sluices were open, the water wouldn't pour onto the boats from above. This actually put a lot of pressure on the upper gate sluices, which also because of cost cutting probably weren't the best material and design for their purpose. The locks themselves were expected to have a 20 year lifespan, but uh, three locks needed major repairs between 1828 and 1830. Weather and soil, water levels and uh, contractors continue to play an important and detrimental role in the repairs and eventual direct linkage to Lake Erie. Just as Merritt had jockeyed to put the canal through his land, landowners in the south, including some board members, now jockeyed to bring the route through their land. The options were boundless, but in the end, Gravelly Bay, now Port Colburn, was selected and work began with another large loan from the province extension of credit from American banks in Albany on Yates' personal credit and more personal funds from Yates. Yates also purchased hydraulic rights to the feeder canal for 100,000 pounds, which was pushed, which pushed the uh, nervous provincial government even closer to eventual public ownership. 
Not helping the situation, the government sent in Robert Randall, MPP, in 1830 to inspect the works before they'd give before they'd give the company any more money. He found that the Grand River Dam had settled by some 16 inches. The locks were already in disrepair and found that Portaluzzi was not deep enough nor wide enough at the entrance to lock one. His assessment was positive, despite the grocery list of updates needed. In the meantime, the withholding of funds from the government compounded the issues surrounding the quality of work contractors produced. The less money available, the more desperate contractors were, and the more corners cut. Everyone knew the work was far from over, but the more public money poured in, the more public attention set on the company. There's a time and a capacity limit to the public support of any public project, and the countdown was on. While the construction work continued, the job of operating the canal had to be done too. Now Merritt and the company were dealing with repairs to locks, building the route through to Lake Erie, and operating the existing canal all while fundraising. It is a flurry of activity that kept Merritt busy and away from home. He rode the line often, working with contractors and engineers one week, then he was off to York or Albany or New York, discussing financials or selling subscriptions. Then he was back in St. Catharines, hiring more staff to run the canal, all before heading out again to complete another circuit. The work was beginning to pay off and it became more clear as construction progressed that even in 1830, the government would eventually take ownership of the canal. There was just no way that the company could keep up financially without the market support it needed. Despite their financial tightness, things were looking up and the canal was ready to open for the season on May 15th, 1830. Somebody do the math. How many years ago is that? <laughs> I didn't think about it, but that was just this past weekend. The uh, tolls were, I'm going to keep going, but somebody else can do the math. Tolls were set at $2.50 per vessel, smaller than 50 tons with a towing fee set at uh, $10 from Lake Erie to Lake Ontario. It's worth noting that it was 12.50 towing uphill from Ontario to Erie, fair enough for those poor tow horses. The tolls were much cheaper than competing canals on the Great Lakes, which helped encourage captains to take the new route. Advertisements of this nature appeared in newspapers widely. Captains needed encouragement, of course, because the reputation of the canal hadn't yet established. Think, think of your favorite highway, 400 series highway. You know where all the potholes are. You know where the difficult mergers are. Now, imagine taking a new highway for the first time. It can induce a little bit of anxiety, so you're likely to hit Google Maps or Street View and check it out. Well, captains carrying precious cargo on a tight timeline themselves were risk averse. But getting ships through the canal was imperative for any sniff of success. Unfortunately, not two weeks after opening, a major rainstorm incapacitated the canal 
and it was closed for almost all of June. Then in August and September, it was closed again because they just couldn't get enough water into the system. Like I said before, you need water in the right place at the right time at the right amount. By October, they had finally sorted it out, but then the locks kept causing trouble and they'd have to close again. This did not help its reputation. Shipping wasn't the only industry on the canal from which the company could gather revenue, but mills, but for mills to operate, they needed steady, stable, and reliable source of water power. The canal in 1830 was not quite ready for milling. Though within two years, the company had had to actually shut down the canal completely because so much sawdust had been dumped into the canal from the mills, it was causing blockages. Mills from then on had to fill any gaps in their floors so that sawdust did not get into the canal. If the lock tenders of the 1830s could see how the seaway runs the canal today, they probably fall into the lock. Computer and hydraulic operated doors, infrastructure, shelter, communication, safety gear. Lock tender houses were only approved by the company in 1831, so lock tenders had to make do for the first season of operation on their own. The work of lock tenders was pretty dangerous on the Welling Canal since locks were in somewhat constant disrepair. Temporary solutions made lock operation risky, and there were no footbridges over the lock gates as there were on other canals like the Rideau. To cross to the other side to open the other gate, lock tenders had to balance on top of the slim gates to cross. Not an ideal situation for John Tinline, Robert Fletcher, uh, William Chase, or the other nine lock tenders on the route. But it seems some, some did benefit. Oh no, that it didn't load properly. I apologize for this photo. I will post it. I'll send this photo out in an email to everybody so you can see the ad. This is an ad for William Chase. But it seems that some, like William Chase, did benefit from increasing traffic. William Chase imported goods directly from the canal schooners passing by St. Catharines. Though he had time to run his store, he was only responsible for one lock, where three other tenders were responsible for seven locks each. Again, I apologize for this photo. It's an ad for William Chase's store. And I will send it out uh, via email afterwards. Merritt continued on his role as company agent, now selling unused land, encouraging local milling and manufacturing to establish, and uh, other fundraising and building duties that the actual running of the canal operations fell to superintendents. In 1830, company engineer Marshall Lewis and contractor Oliver Phelps were appointed superintendents of the work, both for repair and operation. Later, however, it seemed necessary to appoint additional staff along the route to monitor water levels, to establish and maintain toll roads, and to keep the canal free from timber and rubbish. In all, 1830 was a disappointing first year. Since only actually being open for two, 
maybe three months of the navigation season, their total revenue was only 1,349 pounds. The Erie made over 5,000 pounds in its first year, and it didn't seem to face as many problems either. Llewellyn didn't catch up to the Erie until the works were completely finished and the government actually took over the company. In 1837, when the works were finally finished, their revenue was only 5,000 pounds. In 1839, with government essentially in control of the company, the revenue nearly doubled to nearly 12,000 pounds. Doesn't really make the case for private, for the private um, case for private operation of the company. The Erie made up that leap in its first five years where it took the Welland 10 years to do the same. While the canal was operational, its reputation continued to suffer. A Captain Finney piloting the schooner Charles and Annie on October 15, 1830 said it best, quote, I had heard reports of its disparagement and expected to have met with some drawbacks in the passage through, but was agreeably surprised to find none." End quote. It seems that no one can agree on the success of the canal. On one hand, the canal worked, it was a successful project. On the other hand, it cost well over 500,000 pounds to complete, nearly five times the original estimates and its constant need for repairs meant it never comp competed to its full potential against the Erie Canal. The reputation of the canal and the company would continue to dog operations. Word of mouth on the lakes was key to competition, which was key to encouraging investment. Don't forget that Merritt had also spent considerable public funds and the political capital on his friends in parliament to accomplish the task. Yet he was still very much beholden to investors, especially J.B. Yates, who continued to fundraise and inject personal funds into the project until his death in 1836. In the mid 1830s, the canal reputation was poor and the company was beginning to become a political liability in parliament. Dum, dum, dum. William Lyon Mackenzie, famed leader of the reformers and later the rebellion in Upper Canada, took on regular attacks of the company to score points against the Tories. Don't forget, Merritt had hitched his horse uh, to, uh, sorry, had hitched his wagon to the family compact. And as secretary and chief agent of the company, he was swept up in allegations of corruption, misappropriation, and wastefulness. For most of the company's lifespan, Tory governments made up the majority of the board of directors including Solicitor General Henry John Bolton, William Allen, President of the Bank of Upper Canada, and most famous of all, John Robinson, Attorney, Attorney General and Leader of the Family Compact. Mackenzie, growing more and more unruly in his critique of government and the canal, published attacks against Merritt's management in special newspapers he published in 1835. The Welland Canal Company became central to Mackenzie's arguments 
for reform. Public trust was quickly eroded while Merritt and the company were cleared of all alleged corruption at a special investigation in 1836, the damage had been done to Merritt and to the company, but more to the family compact. Mackenzie led his famous rebellion not a year after that. As I'm wrapping up, I just want to note that our broadcast lag, again, is approximately two minutes. So if you do have any questions, um, I will gladly wait for them, but uh, you can put them in the chat box now. Ah, yes. Uh, Lori has a great question about currency conversion. Um, the 500,000 pounds total uh, of um, the total cost of the canal would uh, basically approximate to about 4.5 or 5 million uh, Canadian dollars today. Um, so it's uh, a lot of a lot of money. Uh, oh, and I think Kathy is also helping out a little bit of with some purchasing power as well. All right, thank you very much. Uh, other questions are welcome though. So uh, our, all questions are welcome. And thanks again, Laurie, for that great question. It's, it's helpful to put it into to context. Um, the uh, sort of constant throwing of 25,000 pounds at the, at the company from the government uh, and also all the money that uh, private investors were basically tossing into the company is, is uh, astounding really. Okay. Mackenzie's attacks were so pervasive and the company's reputation damaged beyond repair that the successes of the first canal are buried in favor of telling a more compelling story of an experimental project which led to the great achievement that was the second Welland Canal. Mackenzie's attack, the company's own management problems and quite a few setbacks and repairs have been parsed over 200 years as merely a stepping stone to the more exciting Victorian era canal that brought enormous wealth to St. Catharines. But we all know that the first canal was far more than a stepping stone in the line of great Welling Canal projects. We also know that other projects were far from perfect, free from corruption or finished on time or on budget. Those stories are for another lecture. As Roberta Styron and Bob Taylor say in their book, This Great National Object, quote, no doubt historians and canal buffs will continue to debate the pros and cons and the wisdom or lack of it of the choices made, unquote. With its story often reduced to mere sentences, focused, focused on its challenges, I encourage everyone joining in tonight's lecture to reframe the regular parsed version of this story. Instead of the normal tale, the first Welland Canal was made of wood, built between 1824 and 1829, and was quickly replaced by the second canal. Why not add the year 1830? The first Welland Canal was made of wood, built between 1824 and actually finished in 1833 to Lake Erie. And when it opened for navigation in 1830, it opened up a route between Lake Ontario and Lake Erie that would quickly become the most important transportation route in North America.
Hi, it's Adrian again. We really hope you enjoyed the lecture. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us via our social media channels or at museum at stcatherines.ca. If you enjoy the lectures, why not consider making a donation to the museum? Your donations help us to continue to provide the high quality and enjoyable programming that you have come to expect from us. We really appreciate any donation you're able to make. Give us a call at 905-984-8880 during our operating hours to make a donation. Your donation makes a difference. Next time on VMLS via podcast, tracing the tracks of the Underground Railroad.